0: Our Father God, Lord, we praise you this day. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy which follows us all the days of our life. We thank you that you are the eternal rock and that, Lord, our faith can rest in you. Lord, you don't move. You don't change. Your sovereign almighty power is in control of all things. That, Lord, even our very life and breath is in your hands. We rejoice in the very thought, God, that you uphold us with your righteous right hand. And that, Lord, through our Lord Jesus, you have accepted us into your family and made us children. That, Lord, you've washed our sins away and given us eternal life in Christ. What glories await us even as we wait for Jesus to return. And deliver us from the wrath to come. Oh Lord our hope is firmly fixed on that day. When he will come in blazing fire. With his powerful angels. And he will come and conquer evil and sin. Forever. And he will wipe away all of our tears. And our hope will be realized. Oh Lord we look to that day with great joy and with eager anticipation, and Lord, with uh, uh, hearts that are ready to serve and to uh, tell others about your goodness. And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have today to gather and to uh, hear your word proclaimed. May it root deeply in our hearts, and God, may it change our lives even today. May we live by the power of your spirit. May we walk in your love and joy and peace. May we truly realize all that you are to us. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, before I started, I wanted to uh, tell you a couple of resources that I use to study Uh, for the class. And uh, the reason for that is I just kind of want you to learn um, how I prepare. And uh, so I'm reading a commentary by Leon Morris, who was a professor in Australian Bible College. And uh, this is the kind of thing I do when I study. I read through commentaries and I listen to what wise men have said about the scriptures even as I continue to read through the Scripture again and again and again. I have read the chapter, First Thessalonians 1, <laughs> more times than I can count on both hands and feet, just this week alone. And I, as I am memorizing the text and the context of those lessons, I then am also searching for uh, expanded revelation in various places. And uh, this is one of those resources that I use, Leon Morris, okay? Um <clears throat> whenever you're studying different passages in the Bible, these things will always give you added insight. Uh, and it's very interesting to see what uh, 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 men have learned through the years about different sections of Scripture. And, and frankly, I've learned so much about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I, I really think I could sit here and teach on this chapter for months on end. And I'm really having to try hard to move fast. <laughs> Uh, there's just so much here. It's just, it's just the more you kind of dig into it, the, the more it kind of really opens up and, and really becomes clear. So, um, in my trying to work hard and moving fast, I'm also reading John Calvin, and uh, this is uh, Calvin's commentary on Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, all in that one book. This comes from a 22-volume series that you can buy at Christian uh, Book um, Distributors. And I think this is about 120 bucks, 130 bucks for the whole set. 22 volumes of Calvin on the entire Bible, Save, Revelation, and <laughs> one other book. One other book he doesn't comment on. I, I can't remember what it is, but... That boy was busy writing commentaries. He wrote commentaries on the whole Bible. And uh, I have to say, this is, is, uh, this is by far the most helpful resource that I have. It's, it is uh, just tremendously enlightening. Um, in every little text of Scripture you're looking at, he's just got this tremendous insight. And it's just because of his view of God, you know. And uh, he, he just knew God so well. And he knew Christ so well. And he knew the Scripture so well that when when he would comment on it, it just really brings a lot of light and understanding. So anyway, John Calvin is another one of the resources I use. Along with others, I'll share with you in weeks to come. Uh, Okay, so we are back in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And last week we got through verse 3, uh, which brings us today to verse 4, which it's a short little verse. That says a whole lot of info. And the uh, the verse says, Knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so, if you will, if you take the whole chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is 10 verses, and you consider everything that's being said there, this little verse, verse 4, is kind of like an overarching... Commentary of the whole chapter, because what Paul is doing in writing to these Thessalonians and commending them for their faith, he he really is commending them for the things that God has done in them and through them because of salvation and because he came through preaching the gospel, and because God was well pleased to move in their hearts in power and conviction, and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, and convert them, and give them new birth in Christ, so that they became born again Christians and begin to live this glorious Christian life. This whole chapter, he's writing about the things that God has done in them. Well, in verses 1 through 3, he kind of gives a little bit of evidence that they're true Christians. They actually had received the faith. Uh, the faith, if you will, look with me at First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one through three. He says, "Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians." Remember how I told you that that little word "church" is means the called out ones. These are the ones that God called out. The ones, the individuals who God called out of the world into the assembly of the church. And that, if you will, they are a real church, a true church. Okay, Paul's going to go on in the whole first chapter to kind of describe the evidence that's there in their life that's showing forth this idea that they are a true church that they are really the church of God. Because the very next thing he says in verse 1 is that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's describing this union, this supernatural union that every Christian has with God the Father and with Christ, and that these Thessalonians possess that union with Christ. And of course, we spend a lot of time talking about that. But look what he goes on to say. In verse 2, he's thanking God for what the power of the gospel is working in their life. And he says that they have a, uh, that uh, he's thanking God and making mention of them in their prayers, because in verse 3 he says that they have a working faith, a laboring love, and a steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of God. And so he's describing the nature of their saving faith. That it's a faith that's working, it's a, it's a, it's a love that's, that's laboring, and that it's a hope that's fixed eagerly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here again is more evidence that they're Christians, that they're a church, that the reality of the Spirit of God living in them is being borne out by who they are and what they do. Amen? You see that? And so he kind he kind of makes those first opening statements, and then he makes this statement in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, his choice of you. You see what Paul's saying? He says, I look at your life and there's something I know. I know that God has chosen you. How do I know that? Let me go on for the next five verses and tell you how I know that. Okay? As if the first three weren't enough. They certainly were. Um, But look what he goes on to say. He says, I know, you brothers who are loved by God, that you've been chosen by God. Here's how I know. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, and having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so here's Paul saying, he's, in verses 5 through 10, he's commenting on verse 4. And he's saying, here's how I know. That you are brethren loved by God and chosen by God. You see that? Now, I want you to think about this context of this. This is a proud, arrogant Pharisee. Speaking of his great devoted love for Gentiles. Who've been chosen by God. Imagine that. You with me? If you know anything about first century Judaism and (laughs) Phariseeism. That is a marvelous and amazing thing to consider. Okay. But nevertheless it was the reality. These were Paul's Gentile brethren. Who were beloved and chosen by God. You understand? Mm -hmm. You see to the Pharisee. Who are the chosen? The Jews. the Jews. And they're chosen why? They're born of Abraham. Right? They're a Jew. <laughs> you get it? And and so was Judaism, right? For some 1,500 years, approximately. Until along came the Lord Jesus Christ and brought the gospel down from heaven and made it clear to everybody, right? That he was the Savior of all men of every tribe and language and nation and people, all kinds of men from every corner of the earth. Amen? Amen. And so went forth the apostles with this gospel even to the Gentiles. And what is just the most striking and amazing thing, that God chose the proudest, (laughs) the proudest, most personally self-righteous Pharisee on the planet. To take that message to those Gentile dogs, are you with me? That's how I used to refer to Gentiles. They were the dogs, right? And uh, and so these these words that Paul says here, these are amazing words. You know what they show? They show Paul's own conversion. Imagine the work that God had done in Paul's heart that he would now call these Gentiles, right? These idle pagan, idol-worshipping Gentiles from this base city of Thessalonica, Paul would call them his brethren beloved by God and chosen by God. Isn't that amazing? Well, so then he goes on in these following verses, and he comments then on, on their election. But let's focus just for a minute on what Paul is really saying here. He says first that knowing brethren beloved by God, And so here he comments on the fact that they are loved by God. The word knowing here is understood in the sense of seeing or perceiving uh, and, and points to the phrase his choice of you. So it kind of flows like this. Paul says these things about you and then he says knowing brethren beloved by God. You see that's a little clause in between his choice of you. So what does Paul know? His choice of you. Knowing God has elected you. That's what the knowing focuses on. The brethren beloved by God is a little intermediary literary clause that's describing also who they are. Okay? But the knowing, get this, is focused on his choice of you. Or in some translations, his election of you. It reveals Paul's assurance of the divine election of the Thessalonian believers. Because of the evidence presented in verses 1 through 3, and also in verses 5 through 10, Paul is convinced that God has chosen them unto salvation, being witnessed by the amazing fruit born in their lives through the gospel. Now you remember what a testimony these Thessalonians are. Paul had only been there for four short weeks and established this church, He was run out of town by hostile people, left this little baby church behind in this very hostile environment, and he didn't see him for months on end. Later on, three or four months later, he comes back to find out how did the Thessalonians fare in all of that affliction and persecution that I left them behind in. Next thing he knows, they've preached the gospel to the entire province of Macedonia, which was no small feat. (laughs) Amen. And what a, what a flourishing, healthy church they were. And uh, it's just an amazing story. But it is this fruit that Paul sees in the lives of the Thessalonians that causes him to say, I know God has chosen you. I look at your life and I see the evidence. You guys are the real thing. Amen? You see that? The testimony of the Thessalonians' faith was so great That the reality of their regeneration was not in question, but known not only by Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but also, he says, in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. It's just an amazing thing to think that not only does Paul know they're chosen, but everybody in their world knows they're chosen. Amen? You know why? Why? Because the gospel sounded forth from them. They were Christians committed to preaching the gospel. And this is an amazing thing. But we look at the Thessalonians and we say, now them are some born-again Christians. Them are some of them born-again types. You know, them religious fanatic types. You know, them kind that leave their own city and go to the city next door to tell people about Jesus. You with me? That's who the Thessalonians were. And their faith had become known in the entire province, this little baby church. Just an amazing thing. But Paul says, I know, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. It was an amazing tribute to the mighty power of God's spirit at work in the young church. But also note here an amazing statement expressing the warm affection that the proud Pharisee Paul had for these despised Gentiles. In these two epistles, Paul uses the term brethren 21 times to refer to them. Now imagine this also. This is Paul's first canonical letter. Okay? So if you will, the first letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament is the book of 1 Thessalonians. Of course, that's argued by some. Some, may think, some think it's Galatians. But regardless of the point, this is one of Paul's first letters. Okay? Now, think about this. Here's Paul writing to these Gentile Christians, right? Some of of the first scripture that Paul pens, and in it, in the very first chapter, here he is calling these Gentiles his beloved brethren who are loved and chosen by God. It's just a stunning thing to consider. But in these two letters, Paul uses the term brethren 21 times to refer to them. See here how the insurmountable barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile has been done away in Christ. The enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile has been put to death by Christ, whereas now we are brethren together in one family in Christ. God himself claiming us both together as father. Paul speaks with much clarity of this issue in Ephesians 2, and in verses 11 through 16 of Ephesians 2, Paul describes what he calls the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and how it has been torn down by Christ. Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, he writes, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, that's how the Gentiles were before the gospel came to them. They didn't have the true faith of God. They, were, they were, had not been converted, except for some people that were uh, um, uh, what they called God-fearing Greeks, right? Who were coming and, and hearing the word of God preached in the synagogue. By, by the Jews, who at that time possessed the only true faith in God. However, um, <clears throat> they being without God and having, I'm sorry, having no hope and without God in the world, the gospel dawned on them with tremendous, tremendous light. You have to understand, the Gentiles were off into all kinds of false pagan idolatry. All kinds of false pagan worship. This is the reason why God sent Israel into the promised land. You know why? Because it was time for the land to vomit out those Canaanites. You know what that means? It means that their lifestyle and the things that they did had become so abhorrent to God that it was time for him to judge them completely and destroy them as a nation. And if you're familiar with the things that the Canaanites did, you'll understand very clearly why that was the case, okay? But the point is, this is what people without God and without hope do. <laughs> they just descend further and further into sin, right? And uh, and so it is, the gospel then has dawned on this Gentile world. And he says that these Gentiles in the flesh, right, who are by the Jews called the uncircumcision, right, that uh, even though they had been separate from Christ and having no hope in the world, now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who formerly were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, That in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. You see, here was this idea. In the Old Testament system of Judaism, God dwelt where? In the temple. And where was the temple? In Jerusalem. And when, <clears throat> when the Jews went to worship God, they went up, because Jerusalem was in the mountains, they went up to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, at the mount, okay? And they considered the Gentiles to be those people who were far off. They're way off in the world, away from the presence of God that is in the holy city. You see, they have this whole idea and conception of God, you know, here God dwells, the Shekinah dwells here in the temple at the Ark of the Covenant, you understand, Uh behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, that's where God is, that's where we come, that's where we worship. Those Gentiles, they're far off, they're without God, they're excluded from the covenants of God, they're without hope in the world. They don't even know about the ark or the presence of the, or the mighty power of the creator God. They're Gentiles. They're off in darkness. You understand? But you see, when the gospel came, what happened to that veil? Right? Torn. That veil was torn. Symbolizing, if you will, the way unto God had been opened wide. The presence of God had been now opened up. So that men could now come into the presence of God and God could come into them. Amen? Which is what he says about these Gentiles. Right? They're the called out ones who are in the presence of our God and Father. And in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had entered into this union with Christ through the gospel. Okay? And so when that happened, God took that hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and he demolished it. Which is symbolized in the tearing of the veil. You understand? The old system of Judaism has been fulfilled and has come to fruition now in the cross at Calvary. Okay? And the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. Never is that seen so clearly in this proud Pharisee saying to these Gentile Christians, I know that you're loved by God. And you're chosen by God. Okay? That shows the fruit of of God's work in Paul's heart. (laughs) Okay? And it shows the reality that now the Gentile and the Jew alike, both, right, are one people in Christ. That God has united both Jew and Gentile in Christ. Okay? So Paul not only acknowledges their state of being his brethren now. But also, and greater, God's own divine love for them, as he states, they are beloved by God. What more reassuring and comforting words could be spoken to anyone that they are beloved by God? Amen? Amen. You understand? But this isn't just some, you know, fleeting statement that Paul would say that you're beloved by God. Family, this statement has a basis. It has a reality. Right Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that the Thessalonians are loved by God? Because God chose them in Christ. Amen? And it is because of the merit of Christ and their faith in him that they have now entered into the beloved and have been accepted in the beloved. Amen? And, of course, all of that is the result of God's choosing them. Amen? But nevertheless, the fact remains... They are loved by God because of an objective reality. And what is that reality? The cross. The cross of Christ. By which they have been included in the favor of God. Amen? And so is the gospel message. This is what we call men to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? And to all who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Amen? And we say to people, we invite them to come and to believe and to be what? Loved by God, not judged by God, not headed for eternal wrath, but to come into the favor of God, have your sins forgiven, and be delivered from the wrath to come through what Christ has done. Amen? And and so it is. These Gentile Thessalonian Christians are the beloved of God. And these are very reassuring words. You know, I think it's, it's something that is profoundly evident in the life of every individual Christian that they know that they are loved by God. You understand? This also is the stamp that's stamped on your forehead if you are in Christ. Are you with me? Loved by God. I tell people all the time, you know, one of my favorite verses of Scripture is Romans 8.28. Can somebody quote that? (laughs) Okay, so for God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Amen? So what that verse means is, if you are in Christ, God has nothing but good designs for your life from here on out. Right, that no matter what happens to you, no matter what joys you have or what sorrows you face, God is going to work them for your ultimate good. Right, and that's going to wind up and end up in your glorification when you're going to receive a glorified body. God's going to wipe all your tears away, and you're going to live in God's presence forever. Amen. And there won't be any more sin, no more pain, no more dying, no more crying. Amen. Right, it's a great hope that we have as Christians. Okay, but family, that's what it means to be loved by God. You understand? We're not just talking about the general love that God has for all of his creation. We're talking about the special electing love that God has for those whom he is saving, whom he is calling out of the darkness of this world and bringing into his presence to live with him forever. You with me? This is divine love that never, ever, ever dies. In fact, it's described as eternal life. Amen? Are you with me? And and let me tell you, there is a very clear distinction between divine electing love and the general love that God has for all of his creation, which is expressed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, let me ask you a question. If God loves every single person in the world, Is that love eternal? Is that the eternal kind of electing love that brings them into his favor? No. What happens? At some point, that love that God has gets expressed in justice towards sin. Are you with me? And either that person has to die for their own personal sins or Jesus has to die for their sins. But somebody's got to shed blood for those sins. Are you with me? And there is a very great distinction between these two kinds of love, and you need to see it. Here it is right here in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul says, I see you Thessalonians, and I know your love by God, because I see the fruit and the evidence of it in your life. Are you with me? This is exactly what he's saying. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Okay? See, Paul knows this. This isn't something he's wavering about. This isn't something he's scratching his head saying, Hmm, I wonder about those Thessalonians, whether they're really saved or not. You know, you ever see some people professing to be Christians and you look at their life and you scratch your head and you say, hmm, I wonder if they're really a Christian. Because man, the fruit I see on the, on the branches doesn't look very attractive. Are you with me? Well, that wasn't the case with the Thessalonians. (laughs) Paul, listen, he knew they were saved, and so did the entire province of Macedonia and Achaia. Are you with me? That's what the Bible says about them. Well, more than this, every individual Christian is chosen by God from eternity past to be the object of his saving love. In Christ and through the gospel, we have been seen by the powerful effects of faith to be the objects of God's own divine and sovereign love, having been called out of darkness of this world and chosen by God for salvation from the beginning through the gospel of our blessed Lord. And this, you know, Paul repeats this same statement to the Thessalonians in the letter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There in verse 13, he writes about them saying, but we should always give thanks to God for you, Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the uh, other things I read in preparing for this is a commentary by John MacArthur. Similar to this, it's, it's a commentary written on the book, of first and second Thessalonians. Another thing I do is I listen to John MacArthur, whose teachings are available on audio, mm-hmm. downloaded through the internet, I can listen to him teach through this book, which very closely follows his commentary. Mm-hmm. Well, when he labels his chapter uh, on the commentary of the book of First Thessalonians, chapter one, he entitles the entire chapter Identifying the Elect. And it's all based on this verse, verse 4. Well, when I listen to his sermon on this, he goes on for two entire Sundays, mm-hmm. <laughs> preaching about divine election mm-hmm. and how this was a, a theme in the, in, the, uh, in the writings of Paul and how it was a theme with the Thessalonian churches because he brings it up in both letters. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only does he bring it up, but he shows that the evidence of their faith is, is proof of their election and their calling. And uh, and how this is, is uh, very plainly evident in the first Pauline epistle, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're familiar with Paul's writings, one of the major themes in the writings of Paul is the idea of divine election, which is a repulsive truth to many but nevertheless is evident in much of Paul's writings, right? And, of course, that's only a reflection of the teaching of the Lord Jesus, who gave us several different passages of teaching on the idea of divine election. But here Paul mentions it in verse 4, and he says that, I am knowing, brethren, his choice of you. What's he saying? He says, I know God chose you. That's what Paul's saying. Are you with me? He didn't say, I know you chose God. Are you with me? He doesn't come along and pat them on the back and say, now you Thessalonians were so wise. You know, you were so smart and witty as to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the language of the Bible, is it? He says, we thank God that he has worked this full conviction of the Holy Spirit in your hearts (laughs) <laughs> and transformed your lives so that you have a working faith, a laboring love, and a steadfast hope. He says, I know you've been chosen by God. You see that? And he looks at God as the author of salvation, to whom rightly belongs the glory for anybody's conversion. Amen? On the contrary, we, we are not so wise and witty as to choose Christ, right? Right? But when the gospel comes to us with full conviction, we realize the desperate state that we're in. And we realize how undeserving of God's grace we are. Amen? And we say together with all the elect church, Oh, God's grace is so sweet that he would forgive me. Why would God choose me? Amen? I am the last one in line who God ought to choose if you only knew the sin in my life. Amen? And so it is that every Christian has this broken, contrite spirit of repentance that's been granted to them by God, right? Which is the very vehicle that God uses to open their eyes and show them the reality of what he is doing in Christ. This we call in the Bible, divine election. There's a point in time when what God has done from the beginning in eternity past comes to fruition in time and space, okay? That thing in time and space we call conversion, right? But conversion is something that happens by the power of God's Spirit as he works it in the life of the person whom he has elected. Are you with me? This is what divine election is. But in these Thessalonians, there is no common marks of God's power upon this infant church. Indeed, they had a working faith, a laboring love coupled with a steadfast hope Fixed surely on the coming of our Lord in glory. Their salvation was obvious, but consider that Paul does not commend their wisdom in choosing to follow Christ, but rather thanks God for their faith. This is because saving faith is granted by God, bequeathed to those whom He chooses to save which is an act of his free grace and not a human response to the gospel, but rather a supernatural working of the Spirit of God, effectually calling those whom he has predestined before time began. That's a mouthful. Paul here points to God as the primary source of their saving faith. G.K. Beale states this so clearly. He writes, the main point of verses 1, 4, and 5 must not be lost from sight. The primary point of thanksgiving in 1, 2, and 3 continues on into 1, 4, and 5. Recognition of the evidence of one's election is the ground from which thanks to God swells up. Since God is the one who elects and ultimately inspires good works in people, Philippians 2:13, he, not they, is the one deserving to be thanked. And so it is, Christians are chosen by God. Divine election is a constant theme in Paul's epistles. And so I listed out several references there where divine election is a theme in Paul's writing, including a lengthy discourse in the book of Romans chapters 8 through 11. So if you're new to this concept that Christians are chosen by God, I want to point you to Romans chapters 8 through 11. Where Paul, for four chapters, is expounding technically on how election works. And how it happens in time and space. And he describes, using many different examples and word pictures there, um, uh, the, the idea that Christians are predestined, foreknown, and elected by God. And so, if you will, the high point of that in Romans eight twenty eight through 34 reads like this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And of course there Paul is saying, look, you Romans, you're saved because God has foreknown and predestined you. And let me tell you, He called you in time and space, and you came to believe. And when you came to believe, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of these workings of God's Spirit, you're ultimately going to be glorified. You're going to be brought into that place where you'll never sin again, where this body will put on the imperishable, and we will become immortal and never again be subject to sin or death. Amen? And that's the great hope of the Christian. But why does that happen to us? It happens because God has chosen to redeem a people from this world, to live with him forever in his presence. We call it redemption. It's God's plan and purpose from before he ever created the world. You understand Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. God the Son knew He was going to enter into time and space and give His life as a sacrifice to become a human and live as a human and give His life as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of all those whom He would redeem. You understand? And in the end, they would all be with Him in glory, which is the hope of every Christian. This is the gospel we believe. Amen? Well... In fact, the truth of this matter is so crystal clear in Paul's teaching that it must be ignored in order to overlook it. Not only this, but it is a major theme in the teaching of our Lord Jesus. In the passages I cite there, Matthew 11, 27, uh, 13, 10-17, 24, 22-24, and 31, then also in John six thirty seven through 40 44, 60-71, 15-16, and again in John 17, 9 through 17, and also in the teaching of Peter, and there is a list of teachings there where Peter is also teaching us about divine election. As John MacArthur so aptly aptly states it, Christians are the elect, chosen of God solely by his sovereign, loving purpose, apart from any human merit or wisdom. God, in eternity past, Sovereignly chose all believers to salvation, drawing them to himself in time by the work of the Holy Spirit. As controversial as this topic may be, it nevertheless is clearly taught in Scripture and can be difficult to grasp. Amen? Amen. So, for further study on this matter, see this link to my website. So, there I've given you a link to my website that has about a 47-page document on God's Sovereignty and Salvation, but I also gave three additional resources where you can go and you can learn, you can study about this. The first one is From Grace to You. It's a series preached by John MacArthur on the idea. The next is a page on the monergism.com website that has a list of resources that would take you years to go through. Uh, it's, It's huge. Just on the one idea of unconditional election, And then, of course, there's a reference, uh, a link there to the Desiring God website and a series of sermons preached by John Piper on the same uh, topic. So, if those things uh, get under your skin or uh, catch you off guard, that is, that Christians are chosen and elected by God from eternity past, (laughs) I encourage you to go and to study that some more. And if you have questions... My email address is at the bottom of every page. And I would be more than happy to try to help you see this clearly taught in the Bible. So then that brings us to verse 5 where Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. <clears throat> Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Excuse me, does somebody have a watch? <laughs> okay, will you nudge me when it's 1025? Oh, there we go. Praise God. <laughs> <It's a present. laughs> Verse 5. He talks about these Thessalonians. I want you to consider what he's, what he's saying. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. You know, We didn't just come through preaching the gospel, all right? But what happened was when we got there and we preached the gospel to you Thessalonians, you people got saved. That's what he's saying. You people got saved. How does he word that? But also in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, right? (laughs) In other words, the power of God was with the gospel to convert those Thessalonians, right? This is what Paul is saying. He goes on here to give reasons for his knowledge of their election, as he stated in verse 4, knowing, brethren, his choice of you. How do I know you were chosen by God, says Paul? Our gospel came in not only in word, but in power and in full conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's how I know. I saw the evidence of God's power in your life when I preached the gospel to you, and you got saved. Right? Some people cry a bucket of tears. I cried a bucket of tears when I got saved. I kid you not, I cried for four months when I got saved. If you are around in my house at that time, you know what I'm talking about. And, you know, the Spirit of God brings the gospel with power when God wants to save somebody. You understand what I'm saying? And I don't care how proud of a Pharisee you are and how tall your horse is, right? When God's ready to knock you off your high horse... Right? That's exactly what he does. And of course, I'm referring there to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Right? Here he is on his way to go kill Christians. Next thing he knows, he's on his knees crying and begging for mercy from Jesus. You with me? And and that's how conversion comes. That's how, when God wants to save, let me tell you something, it comes in power and with full conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And he breaks He breaks that sinful will that we have and he humbles us and he gives us a gentleness to surrender to his will. Amen. He gives us a meekness. He gives us a broken and a contrite spirit that's broken over our sin, that mourns over our sin. Amen. And freely receives his mercy. Their conversion was real and everyone knew it because it was plainly evident by the powerful transformation it had wrought in their lives. When the gospel came to Thessalonica, these people were radically changed from their sinful pagan idolatry to a holy life of worship unto the true God. You understand? These people got saved out of idolatry. They were worshiping idols one day and the next day they're worshiping the true and living God. Okay, Paul says... I know you Thessalonians are saved. I saw the power of God change you. I saw it radically transform your your whole system of thought. I saw you change from polytheists to monotheists. I saw you begin to bow your knee to the holy God of heaven. He knew they were saved. Note here the convergence of word and spirit. You ever heard those terms before? He says, listen, the gospel did not only come in word. It didn't come in word only, but with power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It wasn't just a dead letter. Right? But when this, when this gospel came to these Thessalonians, man, it gave them new life. It lit up their eyes. It convicted their hearts. Right? Right? Notice here the convergence of word and spirit. The gospel must come by word. It must. The gospel is a word. Amen? Jesus is the living word who came down from heaven to show God to us. Amen? He's the manifestation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Amen? He's a word. He's a communication from God of who God is and what God does. Amen? But it doesn't only come in word. When somebody gets saved, listen, it comes in power. And that power is what the Holy Spirit does when he applies redemption to the believer. Amen? You with me? And so uh, so, the gospel must come by word. That is what the gospel is, a word or message about what Christ has done. This is how James describes it. He describes salvation this way in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. He says that he brought us forth by the word of truth. How is it that you became a Christian? What makes you a Christian? What, what is it that, 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 that makes you one together with the family of God? Is it not the word of the gospel of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? I mean, that is the theme of who we are. <laughs> we are those who have been called out by this word and saved and beloved of God and brought into his favor and given eternal life. Amen? All of that through the word of the gospel. Right? Right? Jesus says, he who believes in me has passed from death unto life. Amen. What did we believe? We believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he is. Amen. It's that word of truth that brought us forth. You see, the gospel has power to call out the elect of God. So that when the gospel goes forth, let me tell you, all the elect will be saved. Every one of them. Every last one of them. And Jesus said this very clearly. He said, all that the Father gives to me, what? Will come to me. me. Amen? You with me? And so the point is, is that when this gospel goes forth, we are born by this word of truth. The gospel must come in word. That's what it is. Family, people get saved by believing the gospel. Are you with me? There's no other way to be saved. This is what it means to be saved, to believe the gospel. Okay? So you wonder about pygmies in Africa, right? Can they be saved if they don't hear the gospel? Well, let me tell you, that's why you need to get on your horse and head for Borneo, not Africa, because pygmies are in Borneo. (laughs) Family. Family. The gospel is what saves people, okay? We've been given the gospel, and we've been given a charge to take it to the world. Could it be any more clear? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And so if we really have a heart to see people get saved, right? Let's get on the next boat for Borneo. Are you with me? That's what these Thessalonians did. Man, these guys heard the gospel. You know what Paul says? You became imitators of us. (laughs) Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? Town to town with a boot in their rear end, right? And the Thessalonians, listen, they became just like them. They went out and they preached that gospel, man. They knew what the joy of salvation was and they wanted to share it. Amen? And, And family, I pray for my own life and my own heart, just like I pray for your own life and your own heart, that this letter to the Thessalonians impacts me. And it changes me. And it puts the gospel in my mouth. And it gives me a new purpose and a a renewed meaning in my life in Christ. Amen? I'm longing for it. I'm I'm hoping uh, that God will do this work in me. What are we so afraid of? Why shut we our mouths? Are you with me? Well, the gospel by itself without the powerful work of regeneration by God is nothing but words but when it is combined with the full conviction that comes from the holy spirit the result is new birth and transformed lives this is god's power in converting his elect as he writes in titus chapter 3 verse 5 he says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness But according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now, how did God save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how God saves us. That's how God applies redemption to the elect. By the washing of regeneration. By the new birth. Right? Or Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or Ezekiel prophesies of this new covenant in chapter 36, verses 26 and following. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to what God says here. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what God does in the new covenant. He comes in the Holy Spirit with full conviction and with power and he changes the heart. He takes out that heart of stone that I had and he gives me a heart of flesh, a heart that's humble and surrendered to his will, who loves him and wants to do his will. Amen? Amen. And He writes His love on our hearts. And He changes us by causing us to delight in Him. Amen? Changes us from the inside out. Well, this conviction is a powerful work of God's Spirit, whereby He causes sorrow over sin and a longing for reconciliation to God, which results in repentance from that sin, which caused the sorrow, and faith in the life and death of Christ, The only thing that can reconcile us to God. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings a sorrow in our heart over sin. This is what the conviction, the full conviction of the Holy Spirit is. We're convicted by our sins. We see God's holiness. We see our sin. We realize the chasm that is between us and Him. Who He says the chasm exists. He says we are at enmity with Him. He says He has shut us out of the garden. He says He has banished us from His presence. He says we are alienated from Him by our sins. Amen? Are you you understanding? And when we see that, there's a conviction by the Holy Spirit that says, Oh, I've sinned against the Holy God. I've sinned against the Creator of the world. I've sinned against my Father who made me and brought me forth. I've sinned against the loving Lord Jesus Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I've made a mockery of his love. All my days I've ignored his commandments. I've broken his laws. I've profaned his name. And he brings a conviction to our hearts by the Spirit's power. And then he grants us a broken heart of repentance. Turns us around on the road of life. From our pride, our arrogance, our self-righteousness. And he gives us a righteousness that comes from Christ. That we must depend on. The only place we can get it is from him. Amen. Family, if you had to pay the penalty for your sins, you'd die forever. But if you let Jesus pay your fine, you'll live forever. You won't have to die. Amen. Amen. And this is what God shows us when the Holy Spirit comes in power and the gospel is preached and He illumines the mind and we see this great chasm between us and God. And God is saying, Christ, Christ has come and provided the way for you to be reconciled to me, to have your sins forgiven, for you to be washed and for you to live forever. The promise is over death. It's over the grave. The very thing we've sought all our life to find. Even the body as it ages tells us every day, you're headed for the grave, man. You're headed for the grave, man. Amen? Amen. And we look around, the world is full of sin and suffering and shame and evil and pain and hurt. And it's beyond our control. Far beyond our control. Amen? And we see this great hope that God has given us in Christ. And then we long, we long to receive that good thing from God, even his favor, that we might even be called the beloved children of God, amen, and be received. But you see, we got to come with a broken heart. we got to come with a heart that's willing to repent of our sins, turn our back on our sins, and turn to Christ in faith and receive what he has for us, amen. we got to let him come in and do heart surgery we got to let God come in and change that heart. Are you with me? Family, until you're broken over your sin, you don't understand the gospel. But when you realize how undeserving you are, now you're beginning to see the light. Amen? And then you begin to understand what grace means. Amen? That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. This repentance and faith is the divine power of God, which he works by his spirit in the conversion of every true Christian. True repentance and faith are the marks of salvation clearly evident in the Thessalonians. When a person is born again by the power of the spirit, they are changed. As Paul describes in Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so these Thessalonians were by God's power changed from worshiping and valuing dead and lifeless idols to serve and worship the living and true God. Amen? We look at these Thessalonians. You know what? We know God chose them. You with me? Because the Spirit came in power and changed their life. And so this is available for everyone who will believe. God promises to change us. Amen? He promises to break the chains of sin that bind us and set us free so that sin will no longer be our master, that sin will no longer dominate our life and rule us as an evil taskmaster, even as Pharaoh made them Israelites work bricks without straw. God promises to break those chains. And to set us free from that land of slavery. To wash us in the waters of the Red Sea. And march us into the promised land. Amen. Amen. Where you live in houses you didn't build. And you drink from vines you didn't grow. And you lay down in the green grass and the cool water. And you enjoy the favor of God. Amen. I don't know about you. That's been my experience. It's been 18 years now. And I'm more excited about it now than the day I got saved. <laughs> Amen? It's just glorious. And the more I learn and come to know Christ, the more exciting and glorious He is. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, I, I just pray for all who are here that, Lord, they are certainly experiencing this joy that comes from salvation, from a full conviction of the Holy Spirit, even as we have believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray for all of those who might be within the hearing of my voice. Oh Lord, if they haven't been brought to that place of brokenness and repentance and, and true faith, I pray, God, that you'd work it in their hearts even now. Oh Lord, I pray that they would simply crawl out to you and be saved. Oh Father, we thank you for such a rich section of scripture. I pray as we read through again and again that you would just uh, 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 write these words in our hearts, God, that we might know and understand your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, uh, begin to to, uh, have a new goal and a renewing of our goals and objectives as Christians as we see this young Thessalonian church, God, and we see the glorious working power that you gave to them by faith. I pray that, Lord, we would be ascending church that we would be a church going out into our entire province and preaching the gospel so that everyone knew about our faith, God. May this be our testimony. Oh, Lord, we honor you. We praise you. We thank you for the privilege of having your word. We thank you for the privilege of coming to know you and love you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.